Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John. I'm a member here. This morning's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Father, we thank you for the chance to be together. We thank you for a chance to look yet again to your word as we do each week. God, we thank you that on a day like this, where we celebrate three years of your faithfulness to us, you've brought us to such a passage as this. 
And we pray that you would use it, God, to, to, to the purpose for which you have intended it this morning. Use this word to shape us, to stir us, God, to cling to you above all else, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've never really been a fan of taking tests. I don't know about you, especially not like the, like the multiple choice, uh, standardized sort of tests. I just really have never liked those. Um, I always prefer like writing a paper or doing a project. Uh, there's just a lot of pressure with a test, right? Because it's pretty evident for the most part when you take a test, you're either going to get it right or you're going to get it wrong. Now, if you really know the subject, then it's great. You, you take a test anytime. You just zip right through and, and fill all those answers in. But there's nothing worse than staring at those empty answer bubbles and just thinking, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I do not know what it is. This is why, at least in my experience, taking tests is always very unpleasant. But at the same time, it's also why tests are fairly valuable. Tests are very good at exposing what we really know inside of us about a particular subject. And especially if it's very important that we know the particular subject, a test, can be very useful. Well, in our passage today, right away in Genesis 22, the author tells us, after these things, God tested Abraham. And we're going to have to remember this as we go, that we get to know that this is a test right away. He tells us right up front, but Abraham, who's going through it, did not have that information. He would not have known. We're going to have to remember that as we go. Uh, we even learn what the test is right here up front. God calls out, Abraham. And he says, here I am. Right? Like, reporting for duty, Lord. What is it? And God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So as the reader, we know right away, this is the test. Will Abraham obey God, and will he actually sacrifice his son? Now that may seem, I just want to acknowledge, insane to you. Uh, it may even seem cruel to you that God would do something like this. But the truth is, in this day, uh, human sacrifice was actually a fairly common practice among pagan peoples and pagan religions of the ancient world. Now, we will learn later in the Old Testament that God specifically condemns human sacrifice. But at this point in the story, we're just 22 chapters into the Bible, Abraham would not have known any of that. He was fully expecting that God wanted him to kill and sacrifice his son Isaac. But before we get too far into the nature of this test and what's at stake in it, I want to just reflect back a little bit on where we've been. And I just want to point out how this test is tailor-made to show us once and for all, has Abraham actually learned from all these experiences that we've been reading about in these last three months? 
If you'll remember, for 25 years, he has been waiting for God to provide him with just a son so that this promise could actually start to unfold so that all the nations of the earth can be blessed and redeemed through his family line. But along the way, we have seen and we have learned that Abraham has quite a bit to learn. At least he has about this God and about how this promise is actually going to work. And this test right here is designed to show us if he actually has. For instance, now that God has told Abraham to sacrifice the son he just provided, will Abraham try to scheme and plot in order to avoid obeying God like he did back in chapter 12 and again in chapter 16? And then again in chapter 20, will he trust in the Lord to make his family flourish like Lot failed to do back in chapter 14? Will he call God's justice into question because this whole sacrifice just seems too harsh to him, kind of like he did back in chapters 18 and 19? Will he fear and obey God because he knows that his son life belongs to him like we learned back in chapter 20? Will he keep trusting that God will give his family life, that he will multiply his family just as he said, like we saw last week in chapter 21? This is the perfect test. All of these questions are soon going to click into focus as the story goes on, but one thing is very clear right from the outset of the story, and it is that God wants to know if Abraham is going to get something right here. This is the point of a test. And in a way, I think this points us to the question that this passage is meant to answer for us, which is namely, what do we need to get right to gain the blessing of God's promise? Now, that may seem like a really intimidating test to you. I I don't want (laughs) to, you might be thinking like, here are the answer bubbles. Like, I don't want to get this one wrong. What if I get that wrong? But the truth is, I think we're going to see this is such an important test. Church, we just need to embrace this test today. And we need to respond accordingly to what we see in God's word. And so with that said, Bible's open. We're going to walk through this story together. We're going to try and understand how God wants to use it to shape us. And then we'll spend some time applying everything we see as we go. The first thing I want us to notice is the nature of this test. God calls Abraham to make a burnt offering. He's done this a few times at different altars throughout the story so far, but this really shows us that this is not just a test of Abraham's character. It's not just a test of his willpower. First and foremost, this is a test of his worship. Now, later in the Old Testament, burnt offerings will become the central worship practice in the nation of Israel. God's, uh, Abraham's descendants will go on, and they're going to build a temple where animals will be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the whole nation. The idea is that the sins of Israel were basically transferred to these animals who were then killed in place of Israel as a punishment for their sin. And I think we're going to see that everything that Old Testament sacrificial system will go on to become can ultimately be traced right back here to this story, which is really a powerful thing. The author is trying to help his original readers, the people of Israel, to understand why it is they worship the way that they worship. And so first, it's just worth pointing out that whatever God wants Abraham to get right here, it has to do with worship. Next, let's just consider what was really at stake in this promise. And the most simple 
clear answer to that question is everything. Everything was at stake. Back in chapter 12, at the very beginning of of this series, God promised that he was going to multiply Abraham's offspring. He was going to raise them up into a great nation. He was going to establish them in this promised land. And through this whole nation, all the other nations of the world would be blessed. And, And at the time we talked about this basically amounts to the undoing of the curse of sin. All the raging nations redeemed and blessed through this one nation. And with this test right here, it's clear, all of that seems to be at stake for Abraham and Sarah. If they had any hope of becoming this great nation, all of it, it would seem, rested upon this little boy named Isaac. Because again, 25 years ago, they left everything they had to pursue this promise and to come to this land. Ever since then, they have just been waiting for God to give them even one son. Along the way, if you remember, they even got impatient. Abraham uh, got his servant pregnant, and they had a son, Ishmael. And last week, just last week, God, sent, God said to Abraham, send both of them, Hagar and Ishmael, send them away. Cast them out for the sake of my promise. So God has made it crystal clear multiple times. He wants to multiply Abraham's family through Sarah, who just gave birth to this child at 100 years old. And so listen, Isaac is it. Isaac is it. He is here, finally, uh, and he basically embodies the promise at this point of the story. If Abraham did actually kill him, then it would very much seem like soon Abraham would die, and he would die an old, batty man with no children who spent the last 25 years of his life wasting it by wandering in a far-off land with this bizarre delusion that somehow his God was going to redeem all of the world through him. That's what's at stake here. Everything was at stake in this test, which is what makes Abraham's response very interesting. In verses 3 to 8, we get a few details about his response to this command. First, it says he rose early in the morning, which right away it seems to suggest, right, this guy's motivated. He's not sleeping in and rolling out of bed at 10 o'clock. He is on a mission, and then he saddles up his donkey with all the supplies he needs, and he heads off with two servants and his son, Isaac. Notice, there's no grumbling. There's no protest. He's been been bantering back and forth with God this whole series. None of that, just obedience. And when they get to the place God shows them, to Mount Moriah, we read a lot of these little details about what Abraham does with his hands. He took the wood with his hands. He, he cut it. He, he laid it on Isaac's back. He took in his hands, it says, the fire and the knife. If this was a movie, you could just picture the montage with the intense music and the close-up shots on Abraham's hands, right? This is meant to emphasize his action. He is not just worshiping God in in theory or in words. No, he is using his hands to do specific things in order to follow through on God's command. And then we get this tear-jerking exchange between he and his son Isaac. Now, if if you're a parent here today, I realize it's really hard to try and imagine yourself sacrificing your child as a burnt offering to God. I, I, I get that. 
but with as much as you love your children. I want you to try, just try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes here. On the way up to this mountain where he had every intention of killing his son, whom he loved very much, that child looked over to him and he said, my father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. And this precious little boy asks his daddy, behold, the fire and, and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, if there is ever a moment where Abraham would have just thrown up his hands and said, okay, that's it. I'm sorry. I cannot do this. I don't have what it takes. You might think that this would be that moment when the son he is going to sacrifice asks about the sacrifice. But he doesn't. But what he does say, actually, is, is very revealing, and it's a huge hint towards the claim of our text today. Look at verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Now think about this. Abraham is telling the son whom God just provided to him after 25 years that God will provide the lamb for this burnt offering when Abraham knows full well that this son God has provided is the lamb for this burnt offering. Now some would suggest that maybe Abraham knew that this was a test and he just expected God to provide some other sacrifice. I, I really don't think that's the case, because if it was, I doubt he would have taken that knife in his hand and, and went towards his son. More than that, in fact, in Hebrews 11, the author tells us that Abraham did this because he was confident that God could resurrect the dead, which is really significant. He did intend to kill his son. So instead, it seems to me as if now that God has provided this son to Abraham, now against all odds, now after seeing his 100-year-old wife give birth to the son he had been waiting for for a quarter century, I think it seems as if Abraham is convinced there is nothing this God cannot do. Now, much like us, he would have had no clue how this promise would have gone forward had he gone through with this, and like anyone, we can assume that this test would have shaken him to the core, at least inside, absolutely. But towering over his fear and uncertainty is this confidence here that God will provide. So I want us to see all of these details seem to suggest Abraham didn't even flinch at God's command. It may have been hard for him in, inside, but it's almost really surprising as we read this. There's not even a hint of hesitation in him. He just obeys. And at this point in the story, we're meant to wonder, is he really going to go through with this? Is there a limit to Abraham's obedience? And at the climax of this story, when the altar has been built, and his son was laying on it, and the knife was in his hand, and he even reached out his hand to slaughter his son. In that moment, we are meant to realize, no, there is no limit to his obedience. If he is willing to kill and sacrifice this child in this context with everything he's been through, 
With everything that was at stake, there is nothing this man would withhold from his God. He was willing to give him everything. That moment is clearly the pinnacle of Abraham's life. And it's also the crescendo that this entire series has been building up to all along. In fact, this very moment has actually been in the background of our series art for the Abraham series, the promise only God can keep. For these last three months, you've been seeing it every week. Uh, Well, this is an engraving from 1920 by an artist named Juan Legue Latouris. And we'll just kind of take the effects away there so you can see it. I want you to notice the knife is in his hand. His son, Isaac, is underneath him. And then that angel of the Lord. It was in this very moment as the knife was coming down that God put an end to this test. The angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham. And he says again, here I am, Lord, reporting for duty. And then in verse 12, the angel says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Listen carefully. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And we get this gloriously unexpected twist in the story. Not only does God call out and put an end to the test, but on top of that, He provides his own sacrifice. Abraham lifts up his eyes, kind of like Hagar did in last week's passage, if you remember. And like Hagar, he also beholds God's provision. It's not a well, it's a ram. It's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, just waiting to be sacrificed instead of his son. Church, please don't miss this. God provided the sacrifice that he demanded from Abraham. In fact, that's what Abraham nicknames this mountain. This Mount Moriah will go on to be called the Lord will provide. Now, this is really, really interesting. Because if you fast forward in the story of the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read about King Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. This is long, long after Abraham. This is long, long after Abraham's descendants have now grown into an actual kingdom in the promised land. One of their kings will build a temple which will be the very center of Israel's sacrificial worship system. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, this is what we read. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. is unbelievable. In other words, not only is this story the basis of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, it even took place in the exact same location that the temple would later be built. This was essentially the first of many burnt offerings that Israel would make throughout its history right here on this very same mountain which is now called the Lord will provide. So here's the point. Any young Hebrew reader would have read this and thought, oh, this is what that temple is all about. 
This is why we sacrifice those lambs every year. It's to show God that there is nothing we would withhold from him and that we trust in him to provide. And at least in one sense we see that is what worship is, is all about. And so we see Abraham has passed the test. Now we're going to come back to that. We'll talk a little bit more about why. But first, as a result of his passing the test, God reaffirms the promise to him again. Look with me at verse 14. This angel says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, everything I said back in chapter 12 will in fact happen just as I said it would happen. Why? He says, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham, it's because you've offered me the son that I just blessed you with. And then we read this short genealogy, and it may seem really confusing at first, like what's the point of these names that John did such a great job reading? Uh, but the point of this genealogy is simply to lead us to Rebecca who's mentioned there in verse 23, who will later go on to become the wife of this child, Isaac. In other words, not only has Isaac survived this story, but his wife has also entered the story, which means the promise lives on. In fact, it will keep living on until all nations we see here are blessed. All because Abraham passed this test and got his worship right. But let's just consider, what exactly did he get right? It turns out, God did not actually want him to kill his son. He was never planning to let him kill his son. But what he did want to find out is if Abraham feared him more than he feared losing his son. And the fact that he was willing to sacrifice this only precious son in this context, even in light of everything he's been, to, been through, even up to this final moment, all of this was proof that he passed the test. He got his worship right. But here's the key. Not just because he went to the right place, or because he brought the right supplies, or because he built a good altar, or because he took the knife in his hand. Ultimately, it's not just because he obeyed. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. His obedience is crucial. I'm certainly not saying it's optional. It's essential. But we have to consider and ask ourselves why he obeyed, which is what I think the author is trying to show us here. This is so important. All of Abraham's obedience was flowing from a certain belief a confidence that even if he lost the greatest blessing God had given him and his best chance at this promise actually coming about, somehow he trusted that this God would still provide. And so it turns out that if we truly want to worship this God and we want to gain these blessings, then what we need to get right is this certain belief 
about God. It's a belief that radically changes our posture towards God and therefore everything else. Church, like Abraham, we need to believe that this God is far greater than the blessings he has promised to us. This is why we can offer him whatever he asks for. This is why we can rely on him to provide when we have no clue how he will do it. It's because he himself is our greatest need. He is the source and the sustainer of all creation. And if anyone could keep this promise on their own, they would never understand this. He is the point of the promise. It's not us. It's not our kids. It's not anyone else. And until we understand this, we will never truly worship him. We may build altars. We may even make sacrifices. We may even be convinced, absolutely, of course we're worshiping him. But in reality, all we're doing is trying to appease him so that we can get the blessings we really want from him. We will never truly worship this God until he is the blessing we need above all others. But it gets better. It's better because long, long after this, yet another baby boy will be born in the line of Abraham. His name is Jesus. And when John the Baptist first sees him coming, he will call out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, almost like this angel of the Lord does here. Behold, a ram caught in the thicket. Do you see where this is heading? In the person of Jesus Christ, God has provided us with his only son to be the final sacrifice, ending sacrifice that we've always needed to set this whole creation story back on its course. But this time, there will be no angel to stop it all just before it begins. This time, it will not be a test at all. This time, God's son will be slaughtered. He will be forsaken by his father. He will surely die. He will be buried. And then three days later, he will rise from the dead so that the promised blessing of Abraham can finally flow freely to people of all nations. This lamb has come to take away the sins of the world. That's how precious this God is. And this is the ultimate test of our worship, church. Do we worship him to get some other blessings that we want more than him? Or because he's given us the greatest blessing of all in the son that he has sacrificed for us? There has never been a more important test than that. And so with that in mind, let's just consider uh, what does true faith-filled worship look like? I want to show us three marks of true faith-filled worship from this passage. First, I want us to see that true faith-filled worshipers do not withhold anything from God. You see that in the text? 
until we believe that this God is truly greater than any of the blessings we might want from him, the truth is we will always try to withhold certain things from him, which is what you might expect Abraham to do here. We, we won't offer it to him. We're going to keep it to ourselves. Now, if he gives us what we want, of course we'll worship him. It's great. Absolutely. But if he doesn't, and especially if he asks us to give him blessings back, it's over. We will see no use for this God. As a result, we will often say to him, listen, God, you, you can have that thing, and you can have those things, but you cannot have this thing. No, not this. For instance, uh, we might say, well, God, you can have uh, two to three of my Sunday mornings a month, maybe a night or two for small group. But listen, when that church member calls me or texts me about that one thing, I may not pick up or respond at all. And if they schedule something with me and something else better comes along, I might, I might just cancel and, and do that. Because, listen, God, you can have some of my time to a point. But beyond that point, it's all mine. It's all mine. Or we might say, Lord, you can take as much of my time as you want. Uh, you could be the crown jewel of my social life. I will constantly serve you and even post about you on social media regularly. I will gladly trust you, God, with my schedule and with my reputation and with my online presence, but don't touch my money. There are blessings that I want to buy with that money, God. Like that better house in the suburbs someday or that dream vacation or or retirement, just long-term stability for my life. There are any number of blessings we might withhold from this God. It could be our family. could be our sons, our daughters, our marriage. could be our sexual desires. could be our health, even. Whatever it is, the thought of, of offering it up to God and letting it out of our hands seems excruciating to us. And this is exactly the point. Because it illustrates that we love these blessings more than the God who's given them to us. By way of personal illustration, I'm sad to say I have an update about the building we've been trying to purchase. Uh, and it's not the update I was hoping to share. A uh, little background, ever since we started meeting three years ago, and before that even, with a launch team of 10 friends, we've been meeting here at Nativity Lutheran. And it's been an incredible home for us in, in many, many ways. But of course, we've also dreamt of having our own permanent home. And you may know for the past six months or so, our building committee has been pursuing the old BMO Harris Bank on the corner of North and Swan. You might recognize it. It was originally built as a church, then converted to a bank. It was converted, we, we, we wanted to rather, convert it back to a church. Uh, we had a great plan and vision to do that. It seemed like an incredible story. It seemed like God was opening all the doors. The city even approved us for conditional use to operate as a church there. Uh, the building's nine blocks from my house, so if you can imagine, for the last six months, I've been envisioning my life as a pastor of a church in my neighborhood where I could walk and, and all of these things. But this week, as I studied this passage, ironically, the owner called me to tell me that a developer came along and offered him more than we can afford to match for the property. So, just an update. Uh, seems as if that has fallen through. And when I hung up 
from that call and picked up Genesis 22. I have to tell you, it felt a lot like the knife was in my hand, (laughs) headed right towards all my dreams of pastoring a church on North and Swan. I really liked the idea of that blessing. It will be hard to open my hands and let it go. But what we want to see here and hear from God's word today is that he is better. He is better than the ideal schedule with a perfect work-life balance. He is the everlasting, eternal God. He is better than our sexual desires. He is the God who's made us in his image as male and female. He is better than any church building on earth. He is the God who dwells in us. And so let's open our hands. Let's withhold nothing from this God. Let's even give him our entire lives as a living sacrifice because he is far greater than anything we are tempted to withhold from him. Next, number two, true faith-filled worshipers stay obediently devoted to God. They stay devoted. This is an interesting dynamic in the text, but I have to imagine that with every step Abraham took closer to Mount Moriah, his obedience became harder and harder. When he first left those servants behind to go and worship on the mountain with his son, that was hard. Then when he laid that last stick on the altar he was building, that was hard. And when he laid his son down on that altar, I can't imagine that was hard. And then when he reached out his hand to just even take the knife That was hard. With every step, he could have easily just thrown up his hands and said, this is is it. Far enough, God. I'm, I'm not going any further. This is my limit. If you ask me to obey you beyond this point, my devotion to you is is done. And in the same way, we also have that very same temptation. We are tempted to obey God and to stay devoted to God to a point. To a point. For some of you, I know Redemption Church is the first church you've ever joined as an adult. Uh, For some of you, I know that you've just discovered even the spiritual significance of following Jesus as a committed member of any church. And that happened for you right here. In many cases, it happened not long ago, and it's been very powerful. But for some of you, I imagine the novelty of that devotion and that commitment may be wearing off at the three-year mark. Maybe a couple years back, you stood up at a member's gathering, shared your testimony. You said, here I am, Lord. I'm dying to myself. I'm walking by faith in Christ, and I want to do it with this group of people. But as time has gone on, as you've journeyed a bit closer to Mount Moriah, as the altar is now finished and your son is laying on it, it may be that your heart is starting to race a bit. Your eyes are starting to dart, maybe, and wander because now that you're here three years in and the sacrifice is much more real to you, you've experienced it. The idea of following Jesus as a member of his church is not going to get you through anymore. It's not going to compel you to that obedience, especially if it means you have to make sacrifices for others, especially if it means you have to make that particular sacrifice, whatever it is. But the truth is, church, our obedient devotion to God and to one another is only a true display of worship if we stay obediently devoted to God and one another. 
Let's not just say we're going to go to Mount Moriah together. Let's not just pack the supplies and head in the right direction. Let's not just build the altar and lay our son on it and then wander off. Church, let's go through with the sacrifice together. Let's be ready to say, here I am, Lord, even when the knife is in our hand because this God is greater than any sacrifice he asks us to make together. And until we believe that, we'll never truly worship or obey him, at least not for long. I want us to see in this story, it is always worth it to obey this God. It is always right to stay devoted to him because whatever we may stand to lose in the process, the truth is, in the end, we will not lose a thing. We will not lose a thing. Number three, true faith filled worshipers receive everything through God's Son. Everything. This God may demand everything of us. He does expect us to obey him and to stay devoted, but he also gives us everything we need to truly worship him. And this is exactly what he's done for us in Christ. In Christ, this infinitely great God of Abraham has given us his son, and that's where this whole story and this whole promise are headed. God's glorious, eternal, sinless son, whom he loved very much, will be slaughtered so that we can finally be set free from the curse of sin, so that we don't have to face his wrath like we deserve, so that people of all nations can be reconciled to him by faith in his son and adopted into his spiritual family through his son so that someday Every member of this family will inherit all of creation together. Now, struck by the beauty of that promise, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen carefully. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what we stand to gain. When we die to ourselves and we live as a living sacrifice by faith in Christ, we gain everything, all things, the forgiveness of sin that we don't deserve, Adoption into his family that we don't deserve. Resurrection from the dead that we don't deserve. Eternal life and intimacy with him that we don't deserve. And someday, church, even the new heavens and the new earth. And so let's give this God everything we have. Let's not withhold a thing from him because there is nothing more valuable There is no blessing greater than the son he gave for us.